Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, March 1st, 2024, coming in like a lion edition of On Iowa Politics. On this week's episode, blood donations, all politics is not local, Iowa's congressional incumbents file for re-election, and of course, AEAs. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me this week are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Aaron. Lead Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough is here. Hello, Caleb. Hello, Aaron. We have Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Greetings, Sarah. Hello, Aaron. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal is here. Hello, Jared. Rest in peace to the eminently funny Richard Lewis, Aaron. Oh, man. Amen to that. Amen to that. And uh, rounding out the full attendance again today is Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Hello, Todd. Hello, Aaron. All right. We start this week with the one topic that has dominated the 2024 session more than any other, the operations and funding of Iowa's nine area education agencies. And yes, loyal and attentive listeners, that is literally the exact same intro I gave for last week's podcast. I repeated that intro this week, not because I'm lazy, but to make the point that this topic continues to dominate this legislative session week after week, and also because I'm lazy. All right, so I'm going to start this week, uh, and I'll apologize in advance for hogging the mic a little bit, but I, but I wanted to offer my quick perspective uh, because this was an especially fascinating debate on this bill, uh, and it was Thursday, right? Nodding heads that they, they did the AEA bill Thursday? Yes? Okay. That's what I thought, but this week, uh, as my state house colleagues can attest, was uh, everything kind of melts together after a short while. Um, so as I wrote in Friday morning's newsletter, if I'm being 100% honest here, fascinating debate does not always happen in the Iowa legislature. Uh, this one stood out. There's so many interesting moments along the way. Uh, we had Republicans talking about the long and winding legislative road that it took to get this particular House version of the AEA bill. We had Republicans making pretty clear their distaste, not just for the governor's bill itself, which that would have been jarring commentary on its own, but for the manner in which the governor's bill was an unveiled. Um, and boy, that's really rare to hear uh, that kind of intraparty criticism um, from floor debate. And then you had some emotional moments from Republicans with children who could be impacted by this bill, including the bill's manager, Representative Sky Wheeler from Hull in Western Iowa. Uh, it really was a, a remarkable debate. And I said this out on the Twitters, or I X this, whatever the heck you say these days, that that was one of the more remarkable debates in the Iowa legislature that I've listened to in my 12 years on the beat. It was it, it was genuinely interesting and captivating all the way through. And there, like I said, there are moments sprinkled throughout that... Um, you know, caught my ear, unlike uh, others. So, so Tom and Caleb, you were there too. Um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts. I apologize for stealing a lot of the good stuff. Uh, but Tom, uh, you, I was listening from across the rotunda. I had my earphones in listening on the computer. You were in the house chamber. What stood out to you? Yeah, I think you did a good job of highlighting some of the key moments um, during the debate, um, particularly, as you mentioned, uh, Representative Skylar Wheeler, the chair of the House Education Committee, um, getting a little bit, um, I guess, um, uh, emotional, um, talking about how he has um, a daughter with autism and that he took the bill early on in the session um, because this was a, a, an issue that was personal to him. Another thing that, that stood out to me is that um, you had cautious support from moderates, um, including from 
Representative uh, Brent Segrist, a Republican from Council Bluffs, who was the former executive director of the Iowa Association of Area Education Agencies, who during debate said he was not thrilled about the bill, but um, ultimately supported it um, because he didn't think that it would hurt special education in, in the state, that initially he had a lot of or I guess essentially was opposed to, <clears throat> excuse me, the governor's bill, but has been brought on board with the changes made by House Republicans and said that while the bill still gives him some heartburn, um, believes that it's a step in the right direction. I guess what was really interesting um, and, and stood out to me is, as you mentioned earlier, Aaron, talking about the way that this issue was brought up and brought before lawmakers, the way that the governor um, rolled out her proposal without really kind of including them or keying them in uh, on the process. He said that um, it's fair to say that this was on nobody's agenda coming into the session uh, and that none of us heard about it going door to door. You know, again, this issue was brought to us by the governor um, and he did congratulate Representative Skylar Wheeler um, for the work on the House version in trying to come up with something that um, is, I guess, more palatable and hopefully palatable to most um, to move ahead. It, it, it was also, I guess, interesting, um, you know, the, um, the, the few, I guess, Republicans um, who uh, did end up voting against uh, the, the AEA bill, you know, that um, you know, it, it wasn't, I mean, it was largely along party lines, but, but again, it wasn't just all Democrats um, opposed, you know, you did have some, some Republicans who said, you know, look, I can't sign off on this, you know, I still have a lot of reservations about this. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, with, with the House bill, the House proposal, I think it is interesting, um, those Republicans who said, you know, look, we need to slow this down, we need to include more people in this conversation and discussion. And so there's a, a provision in the bill that creates this task force, you know, to look at and study the AEAs. And, and uh, that was something that um, Speaker Pat Grassley um, kind of uh, emphasized in talking to reporters afterward, after debate, and after the the, the bill passed out of the House. Um, so those were some things that stood out to me. All right. Um, Caleb, you were in there, too, and you wrote the story, actually. What were your impressions? Anything that Tom and I missed? All very interesting stuff. Um, I think just like the fact that these um, Republicans who were on the fence about it got up to speak at all was really interesting. I mean, you rarely get Republicans, uh, the majority party speaking on a bill at all. Usually it's just a long list of Democrats um, airing their uh, grievances. Um, but, you know, the fact that um, not not only, you know, having these concerns and re reservations privately, but making them public was really interesting. And I, I mean, it's possible that, you know, they had a lot of pressure from constituents from their district from, you know, certain um, AEAs or schools, then they wanted to, you know, make that public that, you know, these are my thoughts on it. And, and, you know, I still do have these concerns. Um, <clears throat> it's also interesting, you know, again, a lot of talk about um, what uh, Representative Wheeler um, said during debate, just that uh, even he was, was fairly critical of Reynolds' original proposal, and he has been, um, but he, you know, when, when uh, he started his, his closing comments, um, talking about a lot of the Democrats were pointing to the um, NAEP scores that uh, governor, the national uh, exam uh, scores 
that Governor Reynolds pointed to to say that you know we need to make these changes in her original report. Um, Democrats were complaining about using the scores as a metric, and Skyler Wheeler said, "You know, this we didn't. I, I didn't look at any scores. Like this bill has nothing to do with test scores. This bill has nothing to do with the report. This bill is, you know, the House bill, and we made this bill based on stakeholder input and long conversations." And he said, "You know, I'll remind you that I am the one who killed the the original bill. We didn't, you know, we didn't like the original bill. So that was really interesting. I thought, yeah. And and speaking of Representative Wheeler and and some of that uh, uh, talk about Tom, you mentioned." Representative Segrist and what he said about the way the bill was introduced. Representative Wheeler touched on that too. I wanted to make sure I got it right. So I pulled up my notes here from yesterday. This is from Representative Wheeler. The rollout sucked. I wish we could go back. I think that there could have been some things done differently. I mean, that's just not stuff you hear during a, a floor debate on, on bills introduced by colleagues elsewhere in the state house. I mean, it did, no matter who it is. Right. And, and uh, just to, to piggyback on something that, that Caleb said, um, I, I thought it was pretty remarkable that um, Skylar Weeder emphasized, look, this is not the governor's bill. Right. You, you know, all, all, everybody that's been so upset about this, like, look, this is a completely different bill. This is not the governor's proposal. We're not moving that forward here in the House. We're doing our own thing. Um, I just I thought that that was, again, re remarkable yeah. from uh, a Republican, especially, um, you know, one like um, uh, Skylar Wheeler, you know, who, um, for the most part, kind of hues closely to, you know, the governor's agenda and, and policy priorities, um, especially um, on our education proposals. You know, he was the one that helped move forward <clears throat> the, um, the the school choice bill, the educational savings accounts, you know, the changes took the gender I took her gender ID right. bill this took year. Her, yeah. Took her gender ID bill this year, right? And so for him to to stand up and to say that, I thought was was pretty remarkable. Absolutely. I would uh, I'd add to the uh, to the vote breakdown because uh, Tom was talking about that and how it was only Republicans that voted for it, and there was a mix that voted against. Uh, two of the people that voted against it were guys from our corner of the state, uh, Zach Deacon from uh, Granville and Tom Janeri from Lamar's, both of whom are definitely more uh, to the right part of the uh, the House caucus, I would say. Um, and it is interesting that, uh, at least as of now, I haven't seen public statements or posts by either of them since the uh, legislation passed. And um, Deacon maintains a pretty active um, Facebook presence in particular. He posted last night about legislation, but it was about the Religious uh, Freedom Restoration Act and not about the uh, the AEA bill. Uh, and a nice little bit of timing also in our neck of the woods, the same day the, the legislation passed the House, uh, the Sioux City uh, Community School District, I mentioned they were considering this last week. Yesterday, they, um, they passed a resolution supporting AEAs and uh, encourage the Iowa legislature to, quote, uh, engage in open conversations and collaboration in involving uh, stakeholders familiar with AEA's work about ways that the AEA's can adapt and improve their structure, services, and costs. So that was a, a fun little bit of timing there uh, from our uh, school district. Uh, for those who haven't listened to us every week, that we've been hearing about that kind of thing across the state. Sarah, I think you told us in podcast past that uh, one or two of the Quad Cities area school school boards did something similar, similar, right? Yeah, and I think if I'm reading this right, it looks like Gary Moore was one of the nays from our Interesting. area. Interesting, there you go. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and, and that points to, to now Caleb, or sorry, Jared and Sarah's points about some of the nay votes, that it's not necessarily 
this isn't an ideological thing. It 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 really is. It, it this is as pure an actual issue I think that I've actually been around. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of politics in there, um, but not to the degree that we see on a lot of other highly debated bills like this. I mean, there's it, this is starting to feel. Uh, Todd will be the one who remembers this best. Uh, a little bit like the gas tax debate more than it does, you know, the the ideological debates where you kind of get. And, and that's not perfect because the gas tax was even more because you literally had Democrats divided on that one, too. And that's not the case here. It's just kind of I, I, I say that and it's kind of in that universe of not as neatly fitting into our R&D politics as, as we're accustomed to. Before we move on from this topic, the one, the one more thing I wanted to raise and Caleb and I uh, were uh, trading slacks uh, about this um, as debate was going on. It's going to be really interesting to see now how this moves forward and and as we talked about and as Skylar Wheeler so clearly noted this is not the governor's bill and he means that literally it you know sometimes they say that's because they've amended it this is literally not governor or senate bill they literally wrote their own bill governor had hers the senate took hers and amended it a little bit um so they are light years apart on this proposal um and it's going to be really interesting to see what gets done and and then what that looks like and again to circle back on some of the points we've been making here today that there, there were clearly some house republicans who a were uneasy with it enough to the point where they didn't vote for it and then another few who did vote for it but you know with not the most full-throated support in the world and and you know if they were on the fence about this one it's pretty safe to assume they're not going to love the bill that's running in the senate uh right now what does that negotiation look like? And um, Sky, Skyler Wheeler said it was literally the last thing he said because he got asked about it by Timmy Brown Powers. My intention is to make this bill law. I'm looking right at my notes again. Mm, yeah. That'll be interesting. Yeah, and and I think like, I, I mean, based on the earlier conversations, I I I don't know if if the Senate bill, you know, if the Senate if the Senate sends says we're going to send over our bills and you can't you're going to have to do something with it. I, I don't think that's going to pass in the house i mean there's just not going to happen and and you know whatever happened if that's the case or it, and if that causes you know elongated problems but i mean i think it's easier for the senate to say we'll take the house bill we're gonna it's easier for the senate to vote to do something even if it's not everything they want than for the house to vote to do things that they think are, are, are terrible right so i i if i were to you know take a bet i wouldn't be surprised if the final results closer to the house and the senate that's interesting so here's here's one more thought that i'll put in your head that a uh, uh, a colleague uh, from the State Out Press Corps outside of this podcast said, and, and now it's keeping me up at night, the possibility that this and the tax bill become end of session negotiations between the chambers and the governor's office and how much the respective, because it, it, it doesn't sound like they're super duper close on the tax bills either, although that's still very early in the process. But if those become, you know, the two big bargaining chips with each other, and then how long does it take for those three parties to get two bills that they can all agree on? And does that extend session then uh, while they hammer that out? That's that's a that's a scary thought, but I have to admit, sounds plausible too. So, so I should cancel my plane tickets on <laughs> April twenty fifth. <25th. laughs> keep keep the keep the optimism, keep the belief. You never know. No, I mean, and and it's funny. It, other than that, it seems like it's a session that's headed for a fast start. Uh, so I really, here we go. I'm going to turn around. And I just knocked on wood again here. Okay, let's uh, move on. Uh, another story uh, out of the 
legislature this week, and and Sarah is going to be able to tie in a great experience and story uh, to this one. So this one is on a bill that did not advance. Interestingly, um, it was a bill that would have required hospitals and blood banks to honor any blood transfusion patients' request for blood from a known donor, like, for example, a family member. The bill was pretty recently approved by Iowa Senate Republicans, and all of them voted for it, but it was promptly stonewalled by House Republicans. They killed it in a subcommittee hearing, uh, which, for those not as super familiar, that's the literal very first step of the process. Um, and that, so that was interesting, not the most common occurrence. I covered that subcommittee hearing, and, and by the way, one of the more interesting revelations was that Republican Representative Stephen Bradley from Cascade was, uh, he was strongly against advancing the bill in part because of input from his two nephews uh, who were both physicians. So that was interesting. And, and for what it's worth, um, if you haven't read my story on the bill, first of all, please go back and do. Uh, but those nephews aren't alone. The medical and, and blood bank community were in total unison in their opposition to this bill. Just, I guess the family members helped drive that home. So meantime, our own Sarah Watson also wrote about blood donation this week, but uh, I got to admit, she took it a big step further than I did. <laughs> Sarah donated her own blood for the story. So tell us, Sarah, tell us about that story and that experience. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we kind of wanted to, this is totally independent of, you know, legislation. We published the story and then, you know, after that it was like, oh, and then also there's this like newsworthy bill that's uh, coming through the legislature. Um, but yeah, so we wanted to follow like a unit of blood through the donation center because of patient privacy laws. I don't know, you know, which hospital or, or who, you know, my donation went to, uh, I wouldn't be able to say, you know, my, my donation went to, uh, somebody with cancer or somebody who was in an accident, but, you know, statistically about a quarter of the U S blood supply goes to cancer patients, um, uh, who need transfusions of blood or, or platelets um, that their body can't produce on their own. So it was it was just a really fascinating process. I've given blood before, um, but I've never followed it through the process. I didn't know uh, all the things that happen to your blood once you, once you give blood. Um, it goes to the center. They separate it typically into four different what they call products, and they have to be stored, some of them. So the red blood cells have to be stored at pretty low temperatures, and then your uh, plasma has to be stored at like negative 30 degrees Celsius um, in order, it has to be frozen in order for it to uh, retain its 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 uh, integrity. And then that goes to hospitals um, and they obviously use it for, like I said, cancer patients, uh, people who are in accidents who have lost a lot of blood, um, people with uh, blood diseases. Um, so it was just, yeah, it was really interesting, really interesting experience. Yeah, and that was a, that was a really cool story. I, I uh, encourage uh, everybody to go back to the Quad City Times website and uh, and find it. Just search up uh, uh, Sarah's name, and and it'll it'll be right there. Just a couple of days back, uh, really cool. Uh, you you've given blood before, so you you were ready for it. But how'd you do it? The cookie was good enough. You you didn't get paint. That was that was gonna be my question, Aaron. That was gonna be uh, my question too. <laughs> What's the? I'm sorry. Did you ask if the cookie was good enough? It was, it was to, to keep you from, you, you didn't get lightheaded or anything like that? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I didn't know that Oreos give you like 6% of your daily iron. Um, so like, I don't know, I might be needing to eat more Oreos for my health. There you go. Help, healthy, healthy, healthy Oreos. And saying <laughs> it all, all along. 
<laughs> I like that. That's um, good to know. Aaron, I um I read through your story. I, I promised that I did, and I uh, I checked the uh, the lobbyist declarations for it, and I didn't see a single one uh, in support of the bill. So, what sort of spurred this proposal in the first place? So, and that that's a great question because this came up during uh, debate in, in both sides, uh, in both the Senate and the House, and it was introduced. It was introduced by a senator. Um, it wasn't a committee bill or anything like that. Uh, Senator Jeff Edler from State Center, and uh, he said it was a constituent bill. A constituent came to him with a concern. Um, he said this individual had experience in, uh, and now forgive me uh, if it was blood banks or blood donation, but somewhere in the sphere um, anyways. And, and you know, he framed it as, look, this just should be something that Iowans should have the right to know where their blood's coming from and and if they want to have blood from a specific person they should have that right um uh, which may sound great in a vacuum but uh, the the blood bank organizations and hospitals laid out uh, any number of logistical reasons for why that uh, isn't really possible and isn't safe in a lot of ways um and you can again get the i'm gonna um shamelessly plug here um if you want the details on that go get that um, in my story, the, the one interesting thing that did come up during debate in the Senate is Democrats, and, and, and I will say up front that Edler denied that this was the case. Democrats claimed that this bill was basically a way to appease people who have become concerned about vaccines and want to get their blood donations from someone who has not received, whether it's the COVID vaccine or any number of other vaccines. Um, and, and, and the health pros have told us, look, that's not a thing. Even if that is something you're concerned about, when you receive a blood transfusion, the COVID vaccine doesn't all of a sudden come into your blood and affect your body. Um, but there, there, there was the accusation that that was the motivation for that bill. And, and again, I will reiterate that Senator Edler um, denied that, although <laughs> He, it was then revealed in the, in the, he said during on the House side that part of the reason the idea for the bill came up was some FDA guidance that came out in 2023, where the FDA kind of recommended against these, and they're called direct donations. And the reason the FDA put out that guidance was because they were seeing an influx of people asking for these direct donations because they didn't want the COVID vaccine uh, in their blood. So. So yeah, that was an interesting part of that debate. All right, we're going to move on to some politics now. Uh, this past week, Iowa's all-Republican congressional delegation filed their re-election paperwork with the Iowa Secretary of State's office. Uh, the fact that Marionette Millimeeks, Ashley Henson, Zach Nunn, and Randy Feenstra are all seeking re-election is not at all surprising and not even necessarily newsworthy. But I did think it was worth noting as a sort of uh, kickoff of the 2024 elections in Iowa segment here. So, uh, Jared, let's uh, start with you. Has um, <laughs> So my question for you is, has Randy Feenstra, by filing a little bit of paperwork, now completed the hardest work of his re-election campaign? Well, um, we'll see. Uh, he does actually have a primary challenger this time, right. um, which, which he didn't have in 22. Um, his challenger is going to be uh, Kevin Virgil, um, an O'Brien County resident who served in the Army. Um, he's trying to run to Feenster's right in the primary and is saying that the 4th Congressional District needs a quote-unquote true conservative 
And um, Virgil is being backed by former longtime representative Steve King, who, um, of course, lost to Feenstra in the 2020 primary and doesn't really have any love lost for uh, Feenstra. He's taken plenty of shots at uh, Feenstra since uh, 2020, including in his book. And, you know, we, we talked about this around the, or after the caucuses. King can still motivate people in parts of his district. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy way overperformed in Crawford County in comparison to the rest of the state. And Steve King hails from that county and endorsed Ramaswamy. So an endorsement from Steve King could help uh, Kevin Virgil. And <laughs> Virgil would still have three months to build up his campaign. But oh, Hold on a second, Jared. Are you telling us on the On Iowa Politics podcast that an endorsement matters? <laughs> maybe. Oh, maybe. I'm so excited. Maybe. I said could. I, I'm, I'm hedging. Okay. I'm hedging. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but something that is staying uh, true to what I've said plenty of times is that I'm naturally skeptical about incumbent representatives losing, especially in, in primaries. The, the case of King losing in 2020 was kind of a unique one. And, you know, Feenstra's done a lot of work during the caucus cycle to present himself as someone with a lot of pull in the Republican Party. Um, so I think that'll help him in a, in a primary. And then I would say if you were making the case um, for Virgil beyond the endorsement, the other thing that would be when King or when um, Feenstra did have a, a challenge in 2020, which is the only time he's had one, he got 45 percent of the vote, which is a plurality, but not a majority. Um, of course, that time there were five people running. This time there would only be two, including Feenstra. So that that would help him. So, um, I mean, given the incumbency advantage and the, the work Feenstra's kind of done over the past couple cycles, I find it hard to think that he would lose. But uh, we've got a long time to go until June. <laughs> yeah, and it'll, at the very least, it'll be interesting to kind of keep an eye on and see, um, uh, you know, how, how even if it's a Feenstra victory, like we assume it will be, how much of that support is is able to be eroded away will be kind of fascinating. Uh, Todd, uh, with the giant caveat here that obviously it's way too early to to feel super confident about this, but but in your early best guess uh, of the other three congressional campaigns in Iowa, how many of those will be truly competitive? Do you think this year? It's kind of a it's a mega ca caveat. How, I mean, how do we, is there like a measurement system for caveats? Uber, Uber caveat. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the first district uh, where Christina Bohannon is trying again to unseat Marionette Miller Meeks could be competitive. And then the third district where uh, the D the democratic congressional campaign committee has already weighed in and uh, supports Lannon Bacom. Uh, who is a well-regarded candidate? I mean, I when you talk to Democrats, they're like, "Hey, have you have you seen this candidate in the third district? He's he's great." So so you know the D Triple C says both of those districts are competitive, and and who am I to question the judgment of the political professionals who work day and night for the D Triple C to to flip seats and and especially such. in Iowa, right? Yeah, sparkling. I mean, I, you record. know, theoretically, depending on what happens politically over the next, you know, umpteen months, or what is it? What are we? This is March now, right? 
Okay. Right. That's what I heard right. at the top of this podcast. All right. I was afraid. That. I was afraid yeah. February was never going to end. So <laughs> that one extra day really threw you up. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's you know leap year. You know, I, I suppose the second district is not completely out of the realm. Although you know Ashley Henson is 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 pretty well entrenched incumbent at this point, and and Randy Feenstra after he survives his stiff primary challenge from from mr virgil well uh you know he'll he'll probably win his seat again but uh yeah so the first and the third and i guess that's that i say both of those with uh you know i'd say large caveats maybe medium well i don't know now i'm getting into stakes i'm kind of hungry so there you go (laughs) and this is terrible tom help me out i'll i'll reveal my um lack of knowledge slash legislature focused brain does ashley henson have a democratic challenger yes she does remind me there and <laughs> slash our listeners yeah uh sarah corkery uh she's oh, a um, right. cedar cedar falls democrat um uh, uh small business owner um breast cancer survivor yeah um so she is um she is running to to challenge ashley henson uh don't think she has filed her paperwork yet but um i understand is planning to do so here shortly and then should note real quick todd you mentioned um become is that how you pronounce that in I, the third the... i think so i yeah. mean i you know if not okay. then someone needs to let me know because i've read it i've read it a lot of times and yeah right exactly it, but i you know i've never this is the first time i've ever said it out loud yeah caleb gave us a uh a zoom window thumbs up there so we must have gotten yeah, it. if I recall, that's that's the way he pronounced it in his uh, launch video. Okay, okay, perfect. Um, it bears noting there is actually a Democratic primary, and that yeah. So now you noted, Todd, um, that Bacom is the D trip uh, favorite candidate, so they're throwing all the resources, and he unveiled at his announcement a, a, just a slew of endorsements um, from you know who's who of Iowa Democrats. But just, you know, for the record, there is a primary, Melissa Vine. Um, who's been a nonprofit leader here in, in Des Moines is, is also running in that one. And it's, and it's pretty active. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. This kind of gives us a good segue into um, our final session, because uh, one of the questions I think we will be thinking about as we follow those can, congressional campaigns is how much are they impacted by the top of the ticket, the presidential campaign? Well, guess what, folks? Caleb McCullough has written a story about that exact topic, uh, exploring it all the way down to the statehouse campaign um, level. And I want to talk a little bit about that story. And, and this actually published last weekend. Um, so if you missed that one, go back on the internets and find that one too. Um, so the gist of Caleb's story, I believe, and Caleb will come on and tell me how far off the mark I was. Um, but it appears that the old adage that all politics is local is no longer true. And in fact, the opposite may be true, that all politics is national. Um, it, the suggestions I saw in Caleb's story that are that one, the presidential election very well could have an impact on down ballot campaigns, like I said, all the way to the Iowa legislature. And that two, we're already kind of getting a preview of statehouse campaign issues uh, with what we're seeing being brought up during this legislative session. So, Caleb, that, is that a fair summary? Is that anywhere close to the mark? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that kind of summarizes it um a lot of it i look i was looking at kind of the the national um political issues that were kind of showing up in legislation this year and that's kind of where the idea 
came about, um, you know, from both parties. Um, Republicans are advancing a lot of bills that deal with crime. Um, they're creating new penalties for looting and smash and grab crimes, which is kind of the thing that national Republicans are talking about and have been for many years as like a result of, of liberal lax on crime policies, they would say. Um, and, you know, they've also been advancing a lot of bills dealing with immigration, um, restricting undocumented immigrants from receiving benefits and allowing law enforcement to deport and arrest uh, immigrants who aren't here legally. Um, and so, you know, these issues are going to be what, you know, any national can a, a big focus of any national um, Republican campaign in 2024, including uh, the likely nominee Donald Trump um, and, you know, Senate um, Congress. And, and I, I, you know, imagine and was, you know, the experts uh, said probably also the state house um, Repu Republicans said that these weren't, you know, these bills weren't filed only because it's an election issue. You know, this is a, a caucus issue and it's something that they've been hearing about from their districts. Um, but it is, of course, something that um, they're going to be able to take home to their district and say, hey, look, we're doing something on this issue that that is very important to voters. And, you know, it's one of those things where cynically you can look at and say they're doing this just because of the election. But elections are a response to voter concerns. So they're doing it because of voter concerns as well. So, you know, it's a it's kind of it feeds into each other. Um, Senate Democrats um, also early on put out um, a package of proposals dealing with um abortion protections and abortion rights and other reproductive health care bills. Um, since they're in the minority, that's not going to go anywhere, but it is, of course, a messaging tactic. Um, and the Senate leader, Pam Yocum, Senate Democratic leader, um, said that their candidates will definitely be campaigning on abortion um, in this upcoming election. Um, she says that Iowans, you know, according to polling, overwhelmingly want to preserve the right to an abortion um, and that they're going to be, you know, messaging on that as they're going door to door. Um, that again is going to be another um, very large national issue um, in the twenty four election. I think that's going to be, you know, a, if not the central, one of the the top issues of of Democrats campaigns this year. Um, so all that being said, you know, the, those issues I think are are being um, they're laying the groundwork for that in the in the state house. And then as well this year, it's going to be a um, presidential election. So so that's the, that top of the ticket is going to be affecting um, how those races are run and, and what the issues are and how people vote. Um, I think that, you know, again, those those national issues are going to be um, in the spotlight top of concern because, especially because it's a presidential election year, people are going to be um, more plugged in. They're going to be thinking about it. And so, you know, when they go to their, when they're considering their state house candidates, they may be asking, you know, those similar questions. And um, it's also interesting uh, I guess the question of how um, candidates will be, uh, how much candidates are going to associate with their um, party's presidential candidate. Um, obviously, in many, you know, most of the Republican rural districts in the state, um, Repub the Re Republican statehouse candidates are going to hew very closely to Donald Trump. He's he's a huge, um, he he's a he's very well very popular among Republicans. He's um uh, uh, it's going to help them um you know in that election in some of the more suburban swing toss-up districts in the state um both democrats and republicans i think are going to have a little bit more of a delicate um question as far as how they're how much they want to uh kind of show show an association with their their nominee i mean when you look at democrats 
Um, Joe Biden's not very popular among among moderates, um, and neither is Trump. I mean, but both of them. But uh, you know, it's it's very possible that you know Democrats are going to have to are going to be campaigning in a way that's kind of like going to have to keep Biden at a distance in those uh, districts. And similarly with the uh, with Republicans, um, you know, they may have to try to um, distance themselves a little bit to to kind of endear themselves to those those no party on the fence voters. Um, but as I mentioned, the story the the party's leaders in each um, state house in each in each chamber of the state house are are you know fully behind their their party's candidates and and you know they say they that they uh, support them and 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 so it, it just depends kind of on the geographics in that situation. I think. That that was something that I've been intrigued by too, Caleb. Is like um, because the favorabilities for both Biden and Trump aren't the best. How many of these races are going to be about the candidates elsewhere on the ballot, kind of enticing people to come out and and vote for them, and then while you're out, voting for whoever's at the very top of the ticket. Yeah, and, and um, you know, on that note, uh, one of the uh, political professor I spoke to, um, Tim Hagel, I don't think this made it into the, the article, but you know, he said, um, you know, if, if you look at uh, the vote turnout in 2016 and 2020, there was a lot more third party votes in 2016 because um, people were not very happy about Trump or Clinton. In 2020, there was uh, almost, there was very, very little third party votes because people thought, you know, this is so very important that we vote for our, our guy. Um, you know, in 2024, we have already a few people who are going to be running third party. People, again, are, are kind of fed up and, and annoyed that they're going to have to vote between Trump and Biden um, again. And so, you know, is that going to cause a big third party breakout for the top of the ticket? And then how is that going to filter down to the bottom of the ticket? It's going to be a, a, an important question, I think. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. Um, I, I tell you, Caleb, as I listen, the one thing that I heard that maybe my biggest takeaway out of that is that this fall, I can write just one template election preview story and then just swap in the the candidate names. Uh, is is that uh, is that fair? if I take that to my editors? Do I have your backing on that? That's probably fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good to know. I like the sounds of that. Democrats want Democrats want abortion rights and democracy, and Republicans want uh, to stop immigration and crime, and then add add another uh, five hundred words, and then you're done. There you go. We're ready for November. Oh man, what are we gonna do all all summer and fall now? We're gonna have to uh, come up with uh, something else to talk about. All right. Um, the last thing, really, really quick uh, before we go, we're pretty much done. This is gonna be a show. I'll have to tell people obviously because I'm gonna ask a show of hands, <laughs> and this is one of those things that um, you only know about if you follow me on Twitter. So if you lost after this, go back to my Twitter account. Show of hands, how many people go and get ice cream alone at any point? Oh, Caleb is the only one who says maybe not necessarily. All right. So most of your podcasters are not afraid to go out and get ice cream by themselves. Uh, we are all on the record about that. Uh, and like I said, if you're confused about that, check out my Twitter. Not not only ice cream, but like even going out and like having a nice meal by yourself. Wonderful experience. Anyone that has any issue with that whatsoever, uh, grow up. I go to movies by myself. Is anybody else afraid to do that? I've done that. Nope. The, yeah. the, only, the only one I would take exception to is going to a concert by yourself, but only because it's more difficult to like recap that to a friend afterward. Even if you go to a movie <laughs> by yourself, like you can still kind of like give them a recap. It's right. a little harder to do with a concert. So it's funny you say that because when I, um, 
said, okay, there you go. Bailey and Doris is going to a concert. Our, our producer, Bailey Sheehan. Uh, I, I, when I went and saw Pearl Jam last year, I, I went by myself. No, I would have happily gone with a fr uh, friend or someone. Um, I just didn't have anyone to go with, and I wanted to see him bad, so I did it. Uh, but I'm with you. I, I, I can see the argument like that, that. That's starting to get a little closer. That's not. But I had a good time. I, I, I loved it. So, all right, let's wrap it up. That's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you're not already, please subscribe to us on your streaming service of choice. And remember, you can also find the podcast each week on your preferred Gazette or Lee newspaper website. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Mesa City Globe Gazette, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Sioux City Journal. Free by Tone DeBoss is playing us out this week. Um, and by the way, check out our story on that artist compiled by our very own producer, Bailey Chian. Go back and find that on the Gazette website as well. And if you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For the whole gang, Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Sarah Watson, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, and Bailey, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. No more chains on my ankle. Had me tied down like a ship with an anchor. Now I'm tied up with a suit and a case full. Can't get enough of the Gazette? Listen to the Gazette Daily News podcast for the latest Eastern Iowa headlines packed into bite-sized stories. Listen at thegazette.com or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or through your Amazon Alexa device. Tell it to enable the Gazette Daily News skill, then say, Alexa, what's my flash briefing?